0: Roblox is a gaming platform with a large ecosystem of players, creators, game designers, and entrepreneurs. The world of Roblox is a three-dimensional environment where characters and objects interact through a physics engine. Roblox is multiplayer, and users can interact with each other over the internet. Roblox is not one single game, it's a system where anyone can design and monetize their own games within Roblox. Over the last 14 years, Roblox has grown to be massively popular. As the product has grown, the software has evolved to meet changes in consumer demands and engineering constraints. Client devices include mobile phones, desktop computers, and virtual reality. All of these clients must have a consistent experience in graphics and functionality. The back-end platform has to support a high volume of concurrent players who are accessing a high volume of content. The networking needs to support multiple players operating in an environment that demands high bandwidth. Klaus Moberg is a vice president of engineering at Roblox, and he joins the show to discuss the engineering of Roblox and the future of gaming. We are hiring a writer and an operations lead. The writer is somebody who would be writing about software engineering and computer science in a part-time capacity, and the operations lead will be helping us run our business more effectively, and that's also a part-time role. If you're interested in either of these roles, send me an email, Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We don't exactly know who we're looking for. We don't exactly know what skill set we're looking for, so don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you. Klaus Moberg, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks. Super excited to be here.
0: You work at Roblox. Roblox has existed for 14 years. (laughs) It's a large gaming ecosystem. Describe the Roblox platform in its current form.
1: Absolutely. So perhaps the easiest 30,000 foot description is that what YouTube is to video content, Roblox is to 3D multiplayer video game content. That is that we produce a set of tools and a platform that lets anybody in the world create a 3D multiplayer online experience or game. And then we also build the platform that lets random people from the internet come and play that game in a super fun social context. So we have about a hundred million players that come and experience these games that they themselves have created every month. And it's just an amazing destination where you can go play super original, creative gaming experiences with your friends online. And if you so want, you can actually make them yourself.
0: Give a few examples of the kinds of games that people build and play.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it... it really looks like a microcosm of the greater gaming industry at large right now. There's everything from social online hangout games to first-person shooters to MOBAs to you, know, you name it. Whatever your favorite game genre is, there's probably a version of that that's live on Roblox today. Traditionally, our audience has skewed sort of towards the 9- to 13-year-old age demographic. And so a lot of the games sort of skew towards that demographic as well. Though, especially as of late, that's really starting to change. We see some more you know, competitive content that is skewing towards older age demographics as well, being becoming very popular on the platform.
0: Describe the process that someone goes through to make a game for roblox
1: so roblox provides a software a a game development environment that we call roblox studio it is a full featured game development environment you know if you're if you're familiar with the unity ide or the unreal ide it'll look pretty familiar to you with some specific differences but within that, you have control over basically everything in your game. You can uh, script gameplay in our uh, scripting sandbox. The the language that we provide to users is Lua, which is a very popular game scripting language in the industry. You you know top Roblox experiences will include about you know, upwards of 50,000 lines of code, but they also have full custom 3D meshes that are uploaded to Roblox asset services. They include full maps and, and 3D environments that you build. We have a terrain editor that lets you build beautiful uh, three-dimensional multi-material terrain. It, you know, basically it's it looks relatively similar to what building a game in any other major popular 3D game IDE looks like today. The the one big difference is that sort of central to the Roblox ethos is trying to make that game development process dramatically more efficient for the developer. So most of the other sort of AAA development environments that are out there, you start with a complete blank slate. All your defaults are empty <laughs> when you when you start a project. Um, and you have to build everything from the ground up. Roblox really starts with the idea that we are going to provide our developer with a starting point, with rational defaults for everything from the strength of gravity to a base plate that's the sort of you know, basis for the 3D world that they're building to a set of player scripts that describe how our 3D avatar would interact with its environment in the game. The developer is always able to modify all of these defaults and build their own player scripts or or their own gameplay elements and obviously radically change the base plate and all that kind of stuff. But we think that by providing a reasonable set of defaults, they can actually move dramatically faster. And I think that's what we've seen with our developer and with our, our our content thus far is that because we provide this really strong set of defaults that sort of mimic even like real world behavior of stuff, you know, real physics, real character actions and animations that mimic sort of anthropomorphic expectations and stuff like that, that they're able to iterate much more quickly and spend a lot less time building an experience on our platform than it would take them to build that same experience on most of the other game IDEs that are available in the industry.
0: There are many facets of the engineering that we'll get into because Roblox is 14 years old and over 14 years... There's lots of ornate architectural decisions that I'm sure have been made and lots of interesting pieces of innovation that we can touch on. I want to continue with a bit of a top-down exploration for what this product is because I, I know that there are a lot of people that are. Un- I was unfamiliar with it when I started digging into it, but I understand now that this is one of those ecosystems that may be under the radar for a lot of people, but has a gigantic following. I mean, there's a lot of like, the internet enables these kinds of amazing, gigantic ecosystems. Can you give me a brief history for how the product has developed over time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, so first off, if any of your listens, listeners haven't heard of Roblox, I would encourage them to either go talk to the closest 12-year-old that they have in their in their life or go talk to any parents they know of kids in that like 9 to 13 year old age demographic and ask them about Roblox you will get a uh, outpouring of emotion from anybody ex- who fits either of those demographics if you're in that 9 to 12 year old age demographic the odds are in the United States today it's better odds that you do play Roblox than that you don't um, we have over fifty percent market penetration in that age demographic, and it is what? just a huge phenomenon. Yeah, so more than more half, more than fifty percent of yes. the twelve-year-old population plays Roblox in the United States and other English-speaking countries today. Yes. Okay. Nice stat. <laughs> so going back to the history, yeah. So our our CEO, uh, founder, and CEO Dave Buzuki, started the company with uh, one of his close friends, Eric Castle, like you said, 14 years ago. So 2006. They first released our development environment, Roblox Studio, two years later. It was uh, at, you know sort of almost like a, a demo at that time. But the concept from day one has always been really consistent. That the idea is that we are building ways for people to do online 3D co-experience with their friends the the initial idea to found the company uh, really came out of Dave's previous company which was a 2D physics simulation tool for the educational space so basically allowing like kids to do their physics experiments not in a real life lab but on a computer this is like back in like the the Macintosh one kind of days. So they built this platform that let kids, you know, sort of attach blocks that had masses and then like smash them together and to do these like physics experiments to see, you know, sort of what would happen from a Newtonian perspective if a big block and a little box block hit each other, what happens with momentum and all that kind of stuff. And they created all this curriculum and and the company got acquired for a nice little exit. But what they noticed while building that is that once the curriculum was over, once the kids were done with the official experiment in class, they would just sit there and like build cars and then crash them together. Or they'd, you know, make these little like short little obstacle courses that you had to navigate your car around. They're basically using this physics simulation software as a gaming environment. And they thought, huh, that's really interesting. And they decided after exiting that company to start a company that was explicitly focused on building a user-generated content gaming platform. So so like I said, they founded the company in 2004. Uh, 2006, they released Roblox Studio, which was the first time people could really build 3D multiplayer experiences that were online and hosted for them. The company... From that point for the next like eight to nine years grew, but grew relatively slowly until a point in in sort of late 2015 when something changed. <laughs> and we have a lot of conversations internally about what that thing was. And the answer is it wasn't just a single thing, but it was a confluence of different factors. But all of a sudden the companies went from growing relatively slowly, you know. year over year or something like that to growing at over 100% year over year and just completely blew up. And we've really continued that growth trajectory ever since late 2015, early 2016, to the point now where we have over 100 million monthly active users. And it's really been a wonderful sort of Silicon Valley growth story where that hockey stick actually happened and seems to be continuing to happen even to this day.
0: Okay, so I know that a product like this, basically, if you look at any angle of the software, there's going to be some interesting stuff we could discuss. I've done a few shows on gaming. One thing that seems to be characteristically interesting in in these shows about gaming is networking. And what I mean by that is when you've got... A massively multiplayer online game like a roblox you've got these people that are independently exploring a 3d environment as a character that's running around so you've got you've generally got like a camera that's positioned kind of behind the character and the character is like a 3d model running yep. through space that's and right. and so that's that's your perception and in reality, the perception is like okay, you've got the whole world on your phone or, you know, on your 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 PC. But of course, this world is like so gigantic that there's no way it it makes sense to load the entire world onto your computer and continuously sync it with the server. So in reality, you've in many of these MMOs, these massively multiplayer online games, you've got a gigantic world that is hosted on a server and it's periodically syncing with each client and giving the client enough world to explore on their client device. And this creates a very interesting networking problem because you have to ask, what are we passing in those packets between the back end and the front end? What are we giving to the client? what does the client what is the minimum amount of information that the client needs to render on their device and is there a path to graceful degradation if the client is on a mobile device on a spotty cellular network can we give them a good experience can we pass them enough data from the back end so i guess I, I, i'd like to just Explore the networking challenges of building an MMO that is available across all the platforms, whether you're on an Xbox or an iPhone, on a T1 connection or a cellular connection. Tell me about the networking.
1: Yeah. So first off, that's a, a great tee up to the problem, though I would take it one step further and say that most MMOs benefit from being built by a sort of vertically integrated studio where the same company that's building the network infrastructure to support the game is also building the actual content of the game. So you know you can have the level designer sitting down with the networking engineer and sort of making decisions on trade-offs between whether the networking infrastructure can support the crazy number of triangles that he wants in the volcano or whatever. Right? Roblox is a user-generated content platform. We have zero control over the content that our community is building. And so we have to actually do the much harder thing, which is to solve the general case and build a system that basically opens up as much capability for the game developer as is possible across all of the devices that we support. So the first question is, what front-end client devices do we support? As of today, we support iOS devices all the way down to the iPhone 4S, which is, at least by modern standards, ancient in its CPU, GPU capabilities, et cetera. On, uh, obviously, we support the Xbox One, we support PC and Android down to, I, I don't remember the the minimum supported version of Android right now, but it's essentially the equivalent of 4S on the iOS side. So the big differentiator for Roblox when it comes to this type of networking is our game engine. We have a fully proprietary custom in-house game engine that we have built from the ground up, explicitly to do multiplayer online, quote unquote, streamed 3D experiences where you have some geometry and rendering done locally on the device, but you have the exact same version of the game engine running on the game server and supporting all of the simultaneously connected clients. So there's a source of truth on the game en- on the server running our C++ game engine. And then we have, obviously, a robust networking layer that arbitrates what aspects of the game world are going to be passed off to the client in terms of ownership for physics simulation. Obviously, the vast majority of rendering happens on the client. And that's all sort of the optimization that our game engine was built with from the ground up for from day one. And it's, it's really, from that perspective, the only 3D game engine on the market that was built with this as its primary or sole use case. Um, even when you compare it to Unreal or Unity, both of those were, even in their current conception, built to have the vast majority of the triangles that they're rendering downloaded in a large DLC or whatever when you first download the game. Roblox is very different in that all of our geometry is streamed from the game engine from the moment that you actually join a game server. None of that is local to your device prior to joining any of our individual experiences. And as a result, the game engine is actually optimized for not just passing up and down ownership, but also passing down the specific geometry of the world that the developer has created. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
0: A game like Roblox has something called a physics engine, and a physics engine essentially outlines the rules of the physics of the game. If if my character jumps, how does gravity interact with that character? Is it you know, is it like the real world where it's uh, you know, 9.8 meters per second squared or whatever? Or is it, uh, you know, is it like you jump and then like, and you can double jump or something, you know? Exactly. Is the physics engine something that is simple enough that you can keep entirely on a client device? Or is that something where it's like you have to make a round trip to make physics decisions?
1: So the physics engine itself is definitely something that could be kept on the device, but you actually run into the networking and ownership problems that we were just talking about, right? If, if you imagine a game like Grand Theft Auto where you can be driving a car and I can be driving a car and then we crash them together, right? If you assume that there will be some round trip time from my client to the server and from your t- client to the server, from my perspective rendering in real time on my device, if you make a last-minute adjustment right before our two cars crash, I'm going to not see that because that last-minute adjustment didn't make it to my device by the time my last-minute inputs got sent up to the server and a new sync of of the real-time geometry locations came back down from the server to my device. And so you might see a different car crash than I would see on my client. So... Really, one of the core competencies of a game engine like what we've built at Roblox is how you arbitrate ownership of physics and, frankly, how you do some predictive modeling of even things down to user input to try to come up with the best guess of how these multiplayer physical interactions are actually going to work in the game space. Do you want to make it something where all physics is owned by the game server and so you know you have a completely level playing field, but a lot of the input and controls then are going to feel super laggy because in order to see the result of an input, you have to take the input on the device, send it up to the, to the game server, which is obviously some hundreds of miles away from you in, in almost the best case scenario, and then send that, have that determine what happened from a physics standpoint and send the results back down for rendering locally on the, your device. Or do you want to have the no lag option where you actually have direct control and rendering of your car or whatever it is locally on your device, but where the reality in your game client can, as a result, diverge from the reality on the game server and consequently from the reality on another player's local client device, because all of it's having to be arbitrated and synced back out of real time from what you're seeing being rendered on your screen? in roblox we have a really complex set of code that you know basically says well if there's no other players near you obviously we can have physics owned locally on your client and then as other players and other dynamic interactions come closer and closer to you this essentially uh, physics ownership code base kicks in and tries to determine the optimal placement of stuff either in the cloud or on your local client, and which version of the world takes precedence. That's crazy.
0: I mean, this is the kind of thing, I, this is why I like talking to people about the gaming uh, the gaming business. You have these kinds of crazy problems. The 14-year the trajectory, what's interesting about a 14-year trajectory is that takes you back to pre-cloud days. There was a show we did with Intuit, Fairly recently, and Intuit made this crossing of the chasm on prem to to the cloud, and this is a pretty interesting area of, of debate or architectural decision making because there are many companies that have investments in colos or their own on prem infrastructure, and you know they get to a point where they're like, well, we've got this infrastructure, it's useful, but there's these cool cloud services and maybe it would be cheaper if we just didn't own any infrastructure. And so they have a set of very interesting decisions about should they get rid of their on-prem infrastructure? Should they move to the cloud with Roblox? I assume it's a little bit simpler because the real traction with the product didn't start until like the post cloud era, but I am nonetheless curious. uh, Are there uses of, of on-prem infrastructure or is everything entirely cloud?
1: No, we, so there's actually two aspects to that. One is you're absolutely right that when they started Roblox, the word cloud hadn't really even been coined yet. In fact, if you ask the engineers who were at the company at the time, we actually have our game server infrastructure internally is referred to as RCC, Roblox Compute Cloud. And they swear up and down that the industry had not used the word cloud before they decided to call it that internally. I don't know if I believe them. I wasn't here at the time. But if you believe them, they think they coined the name cloud, which is hilarious. But in terms of our current infrastructure, there's actually another aspect of it as well, which is that operating a company at our scale, we are now having to make decisions about not just whether or not it's effective to move stuff out of our legacy on-prem data center in Chicago into the cloud, but also... At this point, our scale justifies building out our own global, essentially private cloud infrastructure. So one of the big investments that we've made at the company over the last two years is is literally acquiring our own global fiber network, build, standing up uh, a series of, I think we're at 16 or 17 edge termination pops around the world and running all of data between our own fully owned uh, data centers in Chicago and Ashburn, Virginia, over our own private fiber infrastructure to those edge termination nodes. So from our perspective, our, the way we think about this is if you're a sort of full stack application engineer building a service, you shouldn't actually care what is what infrastructure that service is being hosted on. There should be an abstraction layer that says hey i just need to host this service that needs to be able to serve you know x amount of volume and 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 to be able to scale at y rate up to future volumes and then beneath that abstraction layer there's a a microservice platform team that doesn't actually care explicitly what your service does they don't care if it's serving the social graph or if it's serving the you know uh in-app purchase functionality or whatever they just see a service that needs hosting with a specific geographic distribution of consumption and a specific growth rate with individual you know certain like signals around uh, volume and and stuff like that, and their job is to place that service on the best possible infrastructure. Whether that's public cloud infrastructure, our own you know bare metal for cost reasons, or our legacy data center because it's it's part of one of our like you know sort of legacy monoliths that haven't been upgraded into the latest stack yet. So from from our perspective, basically we try to have a team whose sole mission is making optimal decisions about what infrastructure is best to host individual services and then to abstract that away from the the work that an actual application engineer would need to do to optimize that the resultant user experience does that make sense
0: yes so speaking of services i assume that for many years roblox had a monolithic code base because, you know, I think over the course of 14 years, there has been this increased promotion of the of the breaking up of a monolith into domain-specific services or service-oriented architecture or microservices architecture or whatever the term du jour is. So that probably happened, you know, that kind of breaking up of the monolith or addendums to the monolith. That probably started happening before you joined the company three three years ago. Can you just tell me the the rough picture of the architecture today? Is there some central monolith and then some other services, or is it is it like a lot of just a flat services architecture?
1: So, in an interesting way, this kind of goes back to a core Roblox engineering principle, which is sort of set your North Star in terms of the, the way you want to solve a certain class of engineering problems, and then sort of make sure that any near-term engineering technology choice that you make moves your stack towards that long-term North Star. So essentially, it's another way of saying make sure you're doing the engineering investment necessary to avoid any sort of unnecessary technical debt. Uh, this is a, a core Roblox engineering principle, something we think about every day. As it relates to architecture vis-a-vis like monoliths and microservices, we still do have a core of monolithic code base that powers some percentage of the Roblox, www, website and associated services. The basically the reason that still exists is that it has proven capable more or less of serving you know the 50 to 100x traffic that increase that it's experienced over the last three to four years uh, as we've, we've gone through this crazy exponential growth curve there is an internal mandate today and has been for for years now where if you're doing significant modification to existing services you should simultaneously do the work that's necessary to break them out of the monolith and stand them up as a uh, containerized microservice you know independently scalable managed dependencies etc and so that we have like internal tracking sheets that show the migration of core services out of the monolith and into these independently hosted microservices that now are a significant majority of our back-end infrastructure but there's not a abstract internal mandate that says hey stop all product work until the monolith is dead and it basically draws back to the idea that when that monolithic code base was created. Yes, it was a monolith, but it was also created with a ton of attention paid to scalability and sort of future magnitude of demand concerns. And it's actually, even to this day, operating relatively well from a scalability standpoint. The only part of it that's actually a really major negative drain on internal resources that at our current scale of uh, headcount in the engineering department, having everybody iterating on the same monolithic code base can be kind of painful, and the release schedule becomes a little bit harder to manage and stuff like that. And so we think moving to microservices actually unblocks individual teams and allows them to sort of control their own destiny in terms of shipping their own services and not have to wait for the daily monolith release to get their code out into users' hands.
0: Give me some general perspective for where you're at in terms of Assessing technical debt and resolving technical debt versus building out new features.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what what I often say to engineers that I'm interviewing is that for a 14-year-old company, the amount of technical debt we have is astonishingly low. Wow I, I also say that with a grain of salt because I've never seen the code base of any other 14 year old company in my career so it's easy for me to say that. but the Roblox again, the Roblox operating principle from an engineering perspective is look we're, we're a platform. we're very unique in the game industry in that nothing we are building today has to ship tomorrow. If you're at a traditional vertically integrated game studio, you know you have your content deadline and your game, has to be done by October 1st so it can be cut onto optical disc so it can be on store shelves by November 1st so you can make the holiday season or whatever. And so the entire development exercise is is basically like 9 months of trying to figure out what you can actually get into this release, killing yourself through crunch time for, you know, 80-hour weeks or whatever for those 9 months to get every last line of code you possibly can in by that deadline and then you're done and people go and take a vacation, or if the game's not successful, they get laid off or whatever, until they sign up again two or three months later to do it all for the, for the next year's release. Roblox is totally different. You know, Everyone on my team could go on vacation for six months, and some 17-year-old in Dubuque, Iowa, would still release a new title tomorrow that is marginally better at retaining users or marginally better at monetizing users. And as a company, we would still hit every single one of our user acquisition, short term user acquisition and monetization goals, even if the big thing that my group is working on doesn't ship this quarter, even, right? So it's dramatically more important for us to build the thing right than it is for us to build it on any arbitrary timeline. And internally, it's it's frankly celebrated if somebody's working on a project and they come up with a an implementation that's twice as good, but takes twice as long. That's always something we want to see is, is people taking the time to build things the right way in a way that avoids technic- unnecessary technical debt and gets the product out. We still want to do that in an iterative culture. And we don't want to you know, decide to make a big bet, spend three years heads down, no product feedback, just building the thing and just like flip a switch and see if it works, that's, that's not the way we work. But it does mean what we normally do is set some major aspirational guiding principle, a, a, a North Star that we wanna to work to over the next, like say three to five years. And then every near-term sort of iterative choice that we make, we evaluate whether the near-term implementation or the near-term sprint or the near-term test is moving us generally towards that North Star guiding principle or away from it. If it's moving us away from it, we don't do it, we don't ship it, and we won't take that debt. But if it's moving us toward it, we will do the most incremental solution we can that still validates our long-term assumption. Does that make sense? It does. And so the result is, is actually... Again, like you could consider our existing monolith as technical debt. I frankly don't. I say it's actually a marvel that a significant amount of code base that was written five to 10 years ago is serving 100 to 200x the traffic that we had at the time that code was written. And I don't think that's technical debt. It doesn't mean it can't be significantly improved and we're we're doing that every day, but it's an example of the amount of forethought and discipline that was used when that code base was originally created. And it's something that we try to carry through to everything that we're doing today.
0: What are the programming languages that you use at Roblox? And, and do you have rules around
1: what programming languages developers can use? That's a great question, especially for my group. So at a really high level, the the proprietary game engine that I mentioned is, is predominantly C++. I don't think there's any surprise there. Our web stack, the monolith is a .net, you know, sort of Microsoft stack, though we now have a microservice architecture that gives developers a, a pretty broad mandate to choose the best language that they think is applicable to to their individual problem that they're trying to solve. So we have code hosted in in Go or Python or, or a whole bunch of other sort of languages du jour. On the application side, our tech stack is extremely interesting and non-traditional. So you know, for most mobile applications, especially cross-platform applications, you have this sort of devil's choice to make. Do you want to build your application Logic and UI in the native language for each platform, which generally means you get best in class results at the cost of having to re implement each feature at least once for every platform that you support. So for us, that's at least iOS, Android, PC, Mac, and Xbox, and VR, if not different implementations for both iPhones and iPads, right? Or do you want to use some sort of cross-platform code base, historically embedded web views more recently, React Native or something like that, where you get the benefit of only having to write each feature a single time and having it ship everywhere, but the result kind of sucks. Roblox chose a third door that's really unique to us. It struck us that the very first thing we do when we port Roblox to a new platform is... Integrate our proprietary in house C game engine at the lowest level graphics APIs that are available to us. So, you know, Metal on iOS, Vulkan on Android, OpenGL wherever possible, et cetera. And our game engine itself has 2D UI rendering capabilities but also our application infrastructure, the, the stuff that users navigate to play the games before they actually join a game server, the stuff where they choose a game to play or curate their social network or chat with friends or buy Robux or our digital currency, all of that is both 2D but with a huge smattering of 3D elements, your, your actual avatar itself, the way you decorate your avatar within the avatar editor and, and equip and unequip 3D items and all that kind of stuff. And so we came up with this idea of saying, well, what if we actually used our game engine to render our player-facing app, the thing that a normal game studio would call the app shell? And we've taken the last two and a half years to basically migrate from our previous mobile infrastructure, which is a mix of native and embedded web views, to now when you download Roblox and open it from your home screen on your iPhone... Everything you interact with after the splash screen is actually a Roblox game scripted in Lua, which is the coding uh, the, the the sandbox that we surface to Roblox developers and rendered by our proprietary game engine. The benefits of this have been huge because any time in doing this that we found the performance of our game engine wasn't up to our standards for making a first class social mobile experience we were able to go into the underlying c game engine and fix its 2d rendering capabilities so we made our scrolling frames dramatically more performant we fixed a whole bunch of stuff in terms of how we manage our data models and all that kind of stuff the dog aspect of this was huge but at the same time we get to build a feature a single time and have it shipped to literally every single platform that we support and the resultant product is, in, the vast majority of the time, indistinguishable from something that was built using that device's native UI libraries. It's, it's been pretty phenomenally successful for us and I think is really unique in the industry.
0: I think when we did an interview with Google Earth, they had done something kind of yeah. similar to that.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's exactly right. We've heard of a couple of other companies that have been in a similar space where they had some sort of proprietary in-house client rendering capabilities and decided to sort of dog food it for their own purposes. And again, for us, the results have been fantastic. It's just you have to go through the hard work of building those client side rendering capabilities, which at Roblox was like a, a five-year effort to create our proprietary in-house game engine.
0: So you're you're a VP of engineering, right? Correct. So or how are the engineering teams within Roblox arranged and how
1: do they interact with each other? So Roblox is a very flat organization. We have, just from a size perspective, we have about just less than 600 total employees, about 80% of that is product and engineering. So we're incredibly heavy on on engineering, especially. And essentially there are, we are arranged as, collection of over 30 relatively autonomous full stack teams that have some full stack product ownership over a certain feature set within the Roblox offering. So I currently oversee about five of these teams. My team's purview is is on the Roblox application side, the, the stuff we were just talking about. Basically, you divide all of Roblox software into the bucket of stuff that helps 17-year-olds build awesome 3D multiplayer online experiences. My teams don't do any of that. If you, The other half is stuff that lets random people from the internet come and experience those awesome 3D multiplayer online games with their friends. My team does a lot of that and basically owns the entire user experience from downloading a binary onto their device to actually joining a specific game server, selecting an experience and actually joining a game server for that game and, and getting dropped into the UGC environment. So. What that means is that uh, these, you know, five teams that report to me. There's a social team, a game discovery team that sort of owns the Roblox, you know, equivalent of the Steam game store, or whatever. There's a what we call a universal app team that owns the infrastructure and architecture behind this Lua application where we're dogfooding our own uh, game rendering capabilities to build the app itself, and all of those teams have you know, at least a director-level product leader, director-level engineering leader, their own roadmap of or backlog of features that they own and that they're maintaining and looking to build in the future. And they're basically looked at as a sort of micro startup or a small autonomous company within the larger Roblox construct. So they'll have their own status reports with our CEO, who also is is the ultimate sort of product visionary for the company. And they're in complete autonomous control over what they do on a daily basis, how they hire people into that team, what their prioritization is. They have to justify their decisions to their stakeholders, but apart from that, it's sort of their show to run. And the way we think about scaling the company moving into the future is, we like these autonomous teams of 10 to 30 engineers and associated product designers, data scientists, et cetera. And so we'd, we'd like to see the number of these teams proliferate as they themselves and their size stay about the same. I mean, that's sort of the way we've been operating for about the 18, last 18 months, and it's working really well for us.
0: I'd like to give the listeners a little bit of a picture for how the, the Roblox... Game economy functions. Uh, I realize that's not the you know the area that you spend the most time in, but can you just give me an outline of how the Roblox economy works and what sorts of engineering problems that economic engine
1: creates? Yeah, it's it's actually fascinating. So the uh, Roblox, as we've been talking, is this user generated content platform. And the fundamental idea is that people around the world come to Roblox, use our tools to build these 3D multiplayer online experiences. They host those experiences on our infrastructure. They distribute them to our user base, and we give them all of the tools, hosting, and infrastructure they need to do that for free. What they're able to do is sell Digital assets within those experiences, and those digital assets, whether it's a a skin for a character or whether it's uh, access to a VIP area within a game, you know, you can look at sort of the entire ecosystem of sort of freemium monetization mechanisms that exist in the gaming industry at large. And you'll see some version of that on Roblox today. When they sell something on our platform, our, our players purchase it with our digital currency, which we call Robux. Robux is obviously purchased with real currency, hard currency from wherever the player is coming from around the world. So if they're in the United States, they're buying Robux with US dollars. And developers who sell these digital assets within their game, can actually cash out their Robux and earn US dollars back. So the top game developers on our platform are earning over a million dollars a year from the game experiences that they're building on the platform itself. And it's it's a full-time job, you know, easily a full-time job, very lucrative full-time job for them to build and maintain these top quality experiences. The exchange rate that they, take that Robux and cash it out for it's called the program is called devx. the the process of exchanging robux for u s dollars. that basically, that exchange rate basically, is how we pay our bills and become profitable. So there's a different exchange rate for buying Robux from cashing it out, but inherent in that is essentially their quote unquote app store fee. So instead of paying 30% to Apple for just the privilege of listing your mobile game in their app store and having users download it, they pay a slightly higher percentage but have literally zero other costs other than their time to develop their game for publishing it on roblox and it's playable across basically every gaming platform in existence again ios android pc mac xbox etc
0: given your front row seat to the development of the roblox economy and how the software is advancing and I'm sure you have a lens into how other aspects of the gaming economy are developing, Twitch and mo- Minecraft and whatnot, all these other verticals you just see up into the right growth. And I think I saw some stat about, like, the proportion of people who watch video games versus the, p- the proportion of people who watch sports. And it's just like <laughs> something like 10X or, or 5X, yeah. something absurd that most people wouldn't expect. But gaming is not going to stay the same as it is today, and it's definitely not going to shrink. So uh, <laughs> that certainly leaves only one alternative outcome. Yep. How is
1: gaming going to evolve over the next decade? It's a great question. First of all, if I knew the exact answer to that, I'd be doing something else for a living other than just building software. But if I look at the sort of trends that exist in the industry right now, there are a few things that seem really clear. If you look at what's happening across the industry, going back to your networking questions about where the actual computation for the experience is happening 20 years ago, it was 100% on your computer or your console or your device. And the trend has clearly been, over the last 15 to 20 years, pushing those computations to somebody else's computer up in the cloud. Right, And when you see things announced like Google Stadia, or any of the other competing platforms that are being announced by other large companies in the gaming space, it seems clear that some semblance of, of game streaming that enables players to access AAA quality content, regardless of the local processing power of their device, is, is a big part of that future. This is something that's been part of Roblox's vision for, again, literally 12 to 14 years at this point the idea that we need an architecture that basically produces a best possible experience for every player regardless of the actual client-side hardware that's that's running that experience um, Our approach is pretty significantly different from what the pure streaming entrance recent entrance into the market do where you know Google is basically taking your user input, sending all of that up to the cloud, doing all of the rendering on the cloud, and then streaming basically video back down to your device. It's nice because it makes all of those really hard things around physics ownership and rendering all that kind of stuff really easy. You just do it all on the game server. It's hard because it places big constraints on the size of the pipe that you have to send stuff up and send stuff down, and you have inherent lag on your user input because it's not being processed locally at your fingertips, it's being processed hundreds to thousands of miles away on somebody else's computer. So that's sort of a, a, a trend that I think we'll see continue, but I think the, the implementations that we see in that space will become significantly more complex than what we're seeing from, from a bunch of the new entrants in the space today. When we take a step even further back and look at the trends in the industry, the big question is, how far and how soon do we get to full immersion right four years ago everyone was like oh my gosh it's finally time for vr and four years later it seems pretty clear that vr is still uh and and frankly ar as well is a wonderful tech demo that for a bunch of different reasons has not had its mainstream moment yet when I was hired at Roblox three years ago, it was to lead a small VR team. We don't have a VR team today, and largely that's because the player base just hasn't materialized yet. There's not enough people with compatible devices to justify us having full-time engineering staff dedicated to support of that as a platform, even though our game engine is capable of doing it and the you know we're, we're actually actively available on both uh, Oculus and Vive platforms. So I think when Roblox thinks about the future of immersive co-experience, we're pretty confident that at some point in the future, and it could be three to 20 years away, there will be this idea of fully immersive online digital co-experience where you are in you know, using a bunch of different digital tools to consume a alternate reality with your friends. It's the sort of ready player one or multiverse or uh, whatever you want to call it. That's definitely what we feel like we are building. And it's really a question of when will consumer adoption of the hardware catch up to the digital platform that we're creating. The great news is, unlike a lot of other startups in this space, we don't have any need for VR to take off to be successful. We're, we're growing incredibly fast on 2D consumptive devices today. We're already you know sort of very, very profitable and uh, doing very well with the current technology infrastructure that's distributed around the globe. But we also think we're fully ready for a future where 3D consumption of these same experiences predominates the user experience. Klaus, thank you so much
0: for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking.
1: Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.